Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a monthly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 126, Adapting Austin. That's right, guys. We spent the entire month watching Jane Austen movies. Uh, and so reading many, some so of the many books. Jane Austen movies. Um, yeah, I ended up watching a lot of movies. Jonathan ended up reading a lot of books. Uh, we watched a bunch of them with you guys uh, on the Discord movie nights. Uh, so if you're listening and you're not on the Discord, you can find the link to the Discord on our socials. Yeah, uh, it is open to the public this season. So we're trying to uh, create a community. We're doing, you know, still doing the podcast. We're doing it monthly now just to get all the housekeeping stuff out of the way. And uh, we are throughout the month doing movie nights. So every week we're watching a movie that relates to what we'll be talking about. And so we had a, we had a good time this month trying it out, starting it out, and uh, watching several of these films and also several of the films on the extended watching list, uh, which is also something new that we're doing this season. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of an expanded list. So if you get through, if you're like me and you just watch too many movies in a month, um, then go ahead and watch on that extended movie list if you want to really dive into whatever topic we're looking at that month. Um, There's lots of good stuff on there. There's actually surprisingly not as many Jane Austen film adaptations as I previously thought. Um, There's lots of minutes of content, but a lot of it is miniseries. A lot of it's a lot of miniseries. And we're not really we've already covered one of those on our uh, Pride and Prejudice episode. Um, Uh, Tangentially, I don't think we actually covered the Colin Firth one. Did we not? We both watched it. Okay. Okay, that was that was like episode seven, Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice. And zombies. Uh, and zombies, that's right. Don't forget the <laughs> zombies. Man, I want a zombie adaptation of every Jane Austen novel. Uh, I think there's sh- Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, but I don't know beyond that. Wait, is there really? I believe so. That sounds incredible. Oh my gosh, is that just a book or is it a uh, is it As a far as I too? know, it never made it to the uh, film adaptation stage yet. Gosh, I feel like if I ever get the power to pick a movie to make, <laughs> I would have to do I would have to do that. It would have to be Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. How could it not be? I know. Um, Knowing the story now, there's only like, there's so much so many ways that you can take that. It's crazy. Yeah, so we, uh, we, we did a lot of studying on Jane Austen um, and before we get into her adaptations or the adaptations that came from her work, uh, let's talk about the woman herself and how she became um, a writer and the writer that we know of and think of today. Uh, Jane Austen was born in 1775 in Steventon, Hampshire, England, um, during the Regency period of England, as it's commonly referred to. Austen grew up in a family of the English gentry. Um, so, you know, well-to-do, upper-middle-class, lower-upper-class uh, type people, um, but not particularly rich Um, leading to a certain disassociation with the class and its uh, sensibilities uh, that shows in her work. Her father uh, came from the Austin line of wealthy wool merchants, Um, but uh, as that fortune was kind of divided up every generation between the so many sons of the family, that fortune kind of dwindled to not being too much, and he worked as a rector for most of his life, um, which is like a fancy sort of, priest or churchkeeper type dude in England. I don't really understand the Anglican church all that well, um, but it's something to do with that. Uh, Anyway, the atmosphere of Austin's house was an intellectually open one. 
curious and open to discourse. Uh, they received lots of visitors from uh, other people of the gentry, and young Jane had a relatively broad experience of Britain from a young age. Uh, Jane began reading novels uh, while very young and even started writing while she was very young, sharing what she wrote with her family and those in her community in public readings, which we saw if you were on the Discord movie nights in Becoming Jane. Jane Austen was educated first by a relative um, and then at a boarding school known as uh, the Reading Abbey Girls' School, which was ruled by a headmistress with a cork leg and a passion for theater. One of the favorite lines of biography about Jane Austen that I read this week. Um, but the fees became too high, at which point Jane moved back home and never really again lived beyond the bounds of her immediate family. Um, her immediate family would move around, including a period in Bath, um, which is one of the reasons why we see Bath pop up so much in her books. Bath. Um, both. Um, but it, she would never really live with anyone besides her family. Um, Austin's family would often put on small plays or theatricals uh, for their own entertainment in a rectory barn. Um, and Jane would help with writing both the uh, intros and outros for these and participate in them. They were typically comedies, um, and again, there's a source for some of the comedy in her, her work. Yeah. Uh, That's also around, an interesting note because there's a, there's like a huge plot point in, um, Mansfield park that revolves around a theater and the kind of the down looking down upon doing at home theatricals, which I think is interesting that Jane did that in her own life. Jane has a, she, Jane Austen, I, we keep saying Jane, uh, Jane Austen, um, we don't know her. Uh, Jane Austen has a very broad set of characters um, compared to what most people really think of until you really dig into her work and read like Mansfield Park or Lady Jane and see that there's a pretty broad spectrum of people. Uh, starting around age 11, uh, Jane Austen started composing what would could later be called as juvenilia, uh, loose short uh, form fiction, uh, which according to one biographer, Janet Todd, uh, was stories full of anarchic fantasies of female power License, illicit, illicit behavior, and general high spirits. Um, she would write about three volumes worth, or 90,000 words altogether, which is the length of your average fantasy novel these days. Uh, in 1792, at age 17, she began writing uh, Catherine or the Bower, a novel that she never finished, but its story would later be picked up in Lady Susan, um, an extension of those anarchic fantasies of female power mentioned above uh, from her juvenilia. It is believed to be based off of Eliza de Folide. I don't know. That's a French name that I don't really know how to pronounce. Um, but she was a glamorous French woman uh, who was actually married to Austin's brother, Henry, who would be very important in her publishing career uh, after her first husband was guillotined during the French Revolution, um, which gave uh, Jane Austen actually a perpetual fear of the uh, French Revolution. Uh was not a big fan of France during her life. So that's why none of her stories take place during the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Always yeah. She would never do it. Uh, she would never write her own two city tale of two cities. Um, it's often asked, but no, Jane Austen was never married, uh, but she was engaged for one night to Tom Lefroy, an Irish barrister. Uh, it is often believed that she uh, forwent marriage so that she could continue to write as married women uh, were not really they, they were busy maintaining their husband's house and they were not allowed to uh, form legal contracts. Their husband would have to form legal contracts. So she would have to forego a lot of control and time that she was currently devoting to writing. Um, we don't really know exactly if that's why. That's a pretty good guess as to why Jane Austen didn't get married. 
but no record actually exists because most of her personal correspondence was burned by her sister after she died, which was a pretty common practice at, at the time. It's like deleting your your, your homie's search history if they kick the bucket. <laughs> or their uh, Facebook page. Or their Facebook page. Like No one really needs to see that. Um, although 200 years later, it would have been nice to have. Then she was also engaged to one Harris Bigwither, which, what, wow, what a name, um, later in her life. Again, only for one night. She broke the engagement the next morning, um, which is an event that takes place in Persuasion. Um, Austin seemed to really embrace the idea of marrying for love. That's a big motivation in a lot of her books. And of her, the few court pieces of correspondence that still exist from her, uh, she was known to encourage that whenever her nieces um, or cousins would ask for love advice. Um, she would say, don't marry them if you don't love them. Um, but, you know, with much more flowery, I'm Jane Austen, I'm a famous writer type of language. Um, after finishing Lady Susan, Austen began her first full-length novel, Eleanor and Marianne, later Sense and Sensibility, then First Impressions, later Pride and Prejudice, and then she wrote Susan, uh, which became Northanger Abbey, uh, which Henry Austen would first uh, try to help her publish, um, because uh, even though she was allowed to make a contract as an unmarried woman, uh, she didn't. She wasn't really allowed in the business sphere at this point in time. Women didn't really conduct business, weren't allowed to conduct business, weren't promoted to conduct business. So her brother Henry often ends up acting as her intermediary. Uh, but uh, the publisher, Crosby and Sons, uh, bought the manuscript of the book, uh, but they never published it. They just sat on it for 10 years. Uh, and this kind of led to a fear, because uh, this happened uh, once more with another one of her books. Uh, but this uh, became a fear for Austen, and she would later publish on commission, which would mean that she would pay for the publishing of the book, and then um, she would recoup a certain percentage of the uh, of the book sold, um, which was very profitable for her, actually. Um, but eventually, her and her brother would go to one Thomas Egerton, who would publish Sense and Sensibility on commission, and it was published as being by a lady, uh, Jane Austen's name did not appear on the cover or in the book, uh, which sold around 500 copies in addition and printed for lots of editions. Um, the most, uh, most books around this time were typically printed in editions that consisted of around 500 copies. Um, but Austin's after sense and sensibility, uh, started at 750 in edition. And by the time she published Emma, her final book, they were being printed by in, at the rate of 2000 books in edition, which is a lot of books right then. That's a large amount of units. She was a very successful writer in her day. Uh, her next books were uh, credited as by the author of Sense and Sensibility. Um, her name would never be revealed until after her death, although it was a bit of an open secret who was actually writing the books, and she did have some fame from it in her lifetime. Uh, French publishers pirated her novels, actually, and the Prince Regent of England kept copies of her works in his, uh, in his rooms. Uh, even though she didn't really like uh, the Prince Regent and she begrudgingly accepted a tour of the Prince Regent's estate. Um, but again, even though they were being published anonymously, uh, everyone kind of knew that it was Jane Austen who was writing them. Uh, she passed at the age of 41 from what is believed to be lymphoma, way too young, um, and unfortunately in the prime of her writing career, 
Uh, after her death, her family published her remaining unpublished novels, which included Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, in a four-volume set with some of her other works, which finally acknowledged her name as the author publicly. Austen's work was notable for its transition from plot-centric storytelling to character-centric storytelling, um, and just kind of the shift in form, uh, some of it being plot-focused, some of it being epistolatory, or being, you know, a consistent of a series of letters uh, or correspondence or personal documents from certain characters, which was a very popular form at the time. Um, but Jonathan, what movies based off of those books by that author are we going to cover on this month's podcast? Yeah, so this month we are talking about, first of all, Sense and Sensibility from 1995, uh, which, as we have stated, was her first published work in 1811. Uh, and this film, which took me and Alex both by storm because uh, we didn't actually realize that this is directed by Ang Lee, who shows up in the most unexpected places on this podcast. Um, Surprise, it's Ang Lee. <laughs> yeah, his range of work is just all over the place. The last film that we watched was his uh, uh, Taiwanese film, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, uh, which was hilarious, uh, but not he the guy you expect to do Crouching a Regency Tiger, era. Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yep, Life uh, of he Pi. He also did The Life of Pi. He also did... These weren't on the, the the podcast, but they always shock me. Um, the really bad Hulk movie. The real, uh, yeah. <laughs> with Edward Norton. And then a Mission Impossible movie. Like the second one with the weird rock climbing. Um, that oh some people gosh, pres- See, I forgot that too. Some people love that rock climbing sequence. I don't, I hate it. But uh, yeah, credit that to Ang Lee as well. That dude shoots his shot everywhere he goes. He just does whatever he wants. And you know what? Kudos to him. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes not so much, but he keeps doing it. So this film won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars uh, and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Score. Uh, And I'll also point out that the screenplay was written by Emma Thompson, uh, because that will probably come up because uh, Emma Thompson we have seen in her collaborations with um, her sometime husband, uh, Kenneth Branagh in his Shakespeare work. And this kind of fits in along with those period uh, literary adaptations. I like the uh, phrase sometimes husband because <laughs> it implies that they were like married like three or four times. Sometime, not sometimes. Ah, I see. Which does happen occasionally. There are, there are, sometimes you'll look up at like a famous like artist page and you see that they've gotten like married and divorced from like the same person like two or three times. <laughs> Yeah, I believe Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh did not get back together after they divorced, Um, but they are no longer married. Uh, And we'll be moving on to Northanger Abbey from 2007. This is a made-for-TV film. Um, I think it's BBC and then was re-released in uh, PBS Masterpiece Theater. Um, This is super BBC. Yeah, so this is... uh, This is is a film grant. This is 100% a film grant. Right. So this is Austin's first completed uh, work and last published work posthumously, uh, completed in 1803, not published until 1818, uh, directed by John Jones uh, and, as I said, Masterpiece Theater production. Uh, And then we'll be looking at Love and Friendship from 2016, uh, which is the name is taken from one of Austin's short stories called Love and Friendship, but the story is actually from uh, Lady Susan, which is kind of confusing, but uh, directed by Whit Stillman, and I believe this one's an Amazon original. Uh, And then we'll be moving on to Emma, full stop, from 2020. (laughs) 
That's just Emma with a period at the end, not to be confused with Emma from 1996. Uh, this is the fourth published novel while she was the last one while uh, Austin was still alive in 1814 um, and directed by Autumn de Wilde. Her debut film, she worked in uh, some fashion and music video work before this. This is her first feature length film and it is just covered in fashion and music video vibes. Oh, I love this movie so much. I've, and it's I've, hilarious. I, I, like, yeah. I typically like stylized things. And I don't know if it, this is a very stylized piece and we'll get into like very, the specifics yeah. of it, but I like it over like the take on period pieces that was popular in the eighties and nineties. And we'll get into why that is later, but we have examples uh, of the whole range, I think, uh, in the episode today. So let's get into it. Jason, why don't you set us up with the basics of sense and sensibility sense and sensibility from 1995. After their father's death, two sisters, Eleanor and Marianne, are forced to the edges of gentle society where they try to find love and support with some sense. All right, Alex, so Sense and Sensibility is interesting. So this, the story of the novel in, in its writing and stuff like that is that it was originally uh, epistolatory. 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 Yeah, just kind of um, let all those consonants hit at the same time in a flow. Epistolatory. Just throw it all in there. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously being, uh, it would have been a a series of letters written back and forth to various characters and stuff like that. And you could see that the effect of letters within the story plays a big role. And yet, um, especially in the novel, obviously not so much in the film, just by the nature of the medium, uh, but in the novel, there is a lot of the story that's driven by Eleanor's inner dialogue and the way that she perceives things and thinks about things, especially because by definition, her character is much more reserved than Marianne's. So just to kind of set the scene, the, the title Sense and Sensibility, in a very broad sense, kind of breaks down into Eleanor represents a very sensible, reasonable way of looking at things. And uh, Marianne's personality is much more emotion driven, uh, what in Jane Austen's time would be called um, a kind of full sensibility. Like she she shows her sensibility about everything on her sleeve um, and she has this very uh, romantic idea of the world and she wants everything to fit into that. And she wants to show how much she feels about about everything. So I think it's interesting that even though. It kind of was moved away from the epistolatory format for the novel, which really helps with Eleanor's uh, character development. There is, you get a little bit less of that anyway in the film because you can't do quite as much of that inner dialogue uh, as blatantly in the film format. Yeah, you don't have the, you don't have like an internal monologue playing on screen or anything like that. You do kind of have like this dueling aspect of it. It almost feels like a pair of like, dueling violins or fiddles i guess you we would say in america where we kind of have this back and forth between the two uh it it does feel like it's more in eleanor's viewpoint during the movie though um yeah yeah and it does in the book too although it is ostensibly like a two-hander yeah yeah she she definitely and that might just be because that's kind of where jane austen's sensibility lies just based on what we've Write about her kind of approach to things and being kind of careful um, and very cautious about things mm-hmm. and breaking off two engagements. Um, but 
yeah, it definitely feels like she's she's the main character. But yeah, it does kind of create like this nice dueling vibe, which is a good way to build a theme throughout throughout a piece of work, right? Um, yeah, like you have these these contrasts between the two characters. Um, one's very rational. One's very much into romantic. One's sense of one has sense. One has sensibility. That's one of those old uses of English words that's going to throw me forever. Yeah, we use uh, sensibility I, differently now, so it's going to be we need to find a little better word to be clear. We we like we like use it to mean the opposite of how they're using it. Emotive may, might be a yeah. better term. Yeah, 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 and and just to see the the contrast work out is really nice. Also, the fact that one of the girls kind of one of the girls definitely thinks she's the protagonist the entire time. If that makes sense. And then she realizes, oh, my sister's been dealing with this thing this entire time, too. Right. And so that's the thing is that it's kind of a uh, a meeting in the middle towards the end where each of the sisters has to learn to show, you know, Emma Thompson's character, Eleanor, has to learn to show her emotions more um, because she's not able to, you know, receive the the help that she needs from her friends and family uh, because they don't know that she's struggling with anything, whereas Marianne shows too much, and which gets her in trouble. Um, and uh, and so they they both have to kind of temper their natural inclination towards uh, dealing with their emotions. Um, and I think that the the other there's there's so many contrasts in this film. There's uh, you know, just like as a minor point, there's the the husband and wife, where the husband just like is so nonplussed by everything. And the wife is so chatty. Um, and he's just like, we will not do that. We will do no such thing. And she's like, Oh Gosh. yes, we will certainly go. Blah, 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 blah. So and I will stop I, talking. I love Jane Austen's side characters. So, so, so much. They're great. They're just, they're meant to be like one, they're on theme, which is important. And two, they are just the most ridiculous people you'll ever meet. But they're also like realistically ridiculous. Like they're all absurd, but you're also like, I know that I guy. <laughs> I know I, someone just I, like that. I know yeah. someone just like that. Like we'll we'll get to uh, love and friendship, but there's a character in love and friendship who's a big idiot, and I'm like, I work with that guy. <laughs> I know him. I work with him. He doesn't know what peas are. It's crazy. Yeah, and then there's also um, in Emma, one of the side characters ends up becoming a. a more major character in the way that she's slighted by Emma and then the repercussions of that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's there's, a, she uses her side characters really masterfully. Yeah. There's, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot when you look at uh, fancy critic boys on the internet uh, with their fancy critic words. Um, uh, solipsism when it comes to Jane Austen's work, um, which to me feels a little derogatory. Uh, because it, it just means that, like, they're talking about uh, it, it's the perception that the only thing that matters is your immediate world, um, which feels a little derogatory because they're like, well, you're writing about this and not about the French Revolution. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, see, OK, I want to come back to that in a completely different sense in, in overall notes. But also, like, that doesn't necessarily mean this isn't an unimportant. Um, and it definitely makes this very relatable, uh, this kind of like pocket world of immediate experience um which makes it relatable we see that in how well her book sold right she has yeah. a certain popularity because she wrote her perception of reality instead of trying to make one up or appeal to a larger sense of the world 
um, which matches most people's experience of reality. Um, and here's the and other thing too, in some of the, uh, um, the, the criti- the criticism and just, uh, analysis that I was reading about Jane Austen this week is that she, she came along at a time in kind of the history of novel writing in which stories were very plot heavy. You know, uh, Aristotle famously, uh, wrote that plot is the most important thing in, in a story. Uh, and so you see that in a lot of the Greek plays, like all the characters, they don't really have characters, but it's just what happens to them is kind of important. Yeah, characters become stand-ins for bigger ideas. Yeah, there's, or just they're like all just archetypes. Pieces, pieces to move to create a series of events. Yeah, and you even see in Jane Austen's own time, one of the most famous writers, uh, Sir Walter Scott, who was famous for his plots uh, and his uh, really intricate uh, romantic stories, uh, romantic in the sense of romanticism, which is something that Jane Austen pushed back against. And her stories were very character driven, which is going to be one of the things that we're going to bring up over and over again, is that getting into the real understanding of why people do what they do is really important for her. And so that is something that can be shown in a very kind of small scale way. Like you don't have to have this big epic journey. You don't have to have a war. You don't have to have um, something huge and monumental happen to to take a look at why people do what they do in relation to those people around them and the way that those relationships change and information you know affects people's actions and stuff like that. Uh, and so it's it's really interesting how much of human nature can be pulled out of. What essentially in all of these stories, not a lot happens. Sense and Sensibility honestly has the most like dramatic stuff happen with there's betrayals and backstabbing and secrets and stuff like that. Um, a lot of the other ones is just people going from one dinner party to another and the way that they talk about each other drastically changes their interactions. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about getting down to those elements of human experience that aren't easily expressible. Uh, without the larger context that a piece of art like Jane Austen's work presents. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, at the end of the story, you can probably sum it up in some words or a dialogue or a monologue, um, but it's not really the same um, unless you get through, unless you work through art. That's why we have art to communicate that stuff, which is otherwise uncommunicable. And that's why going back to our, our Pride and Prejudice episode back in season one, um, that episode is kind of, at least among ourselves, is kind of infamous for our difficulty in just describing the story uh, before we even got to talking about the movies. But it's because nothing kind of happens independently. You have to almost describe every every single thing to describe any part of what happens or why it matters. Um, yeah, it's only important within the context of their own lives, which is yeah. how most things that seem banal to other people about your own life seem important to you because they only they're only important within your own context. Right. So let's bring up the uh, the love interests because there are three and they provide a lot of insight into these contrasts that we've been describing and also the characters of Eleanor and Marianne themselves. So the first one that we have is uh, Edward Farrar's who is Eleanor's love interest. He's very reserved like herself, um, very kind of to himself, very amiable. All the family like him. Um, 
And then we meet John Willoughby, who literally storms into Marianne's life uh, as she has fallen down a hill, sprained her ankle. It's raining. He gallops in on a horse, scoops her up, brings her home. Never trust men you meet in the rain. (laughs) It's literally the most gallant and romantic meeting that they could think of, like perfect for Marianne. Um, and the, the family all love him. He's starts interacting with them. Very fun, but also very kind of, uh, yeah, you can almost never trust him his sleeves as well. You can ever, you can almost never trust a meet cute in a Jane Austen novel. Yeah. Right. Uh, because when people meet and like start off hating each other and then start loving each other, then, you know, okay, I trust you. (laughs) <laughs> which which is you know. a little worrisome. Like part of me wants to go back in time and ask Jane if she's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure. Well, actually, we don't even have to say that. I was going to say, I'm sure she could tell some stories about the people that she knew and their entanglements, but I think we have them all. I think we have most of them right here I in front of us. In of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So, but things do change when both uh, Edward and Willoughby kind of leave without much notice and they don't or uh the family gets kicked out by the most just the worst the the two sisters brother older brother by their dad from another marriage ends up inheriting all their stuff and doesn't give them anything uh oh my gosh i hate him i hate him what a plot (laughs) oh yeah no she sucks she's the worst Um, if there's one thing jane austen's really good at it's writing a hateable character oh my gosh i know they're just Oof. So anyway, they have to leave. And so they never see Edward, even though he promises to come to them. And then little like secrets start to creep up. Oh, and we also have to introduce Colonel Brandon, who shows up at their new home. Um, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Yes, Alan Rickman. So he's interesting because Colonel Brandon is very reserved like uh, Eleanor is. Um, and you can tell he's got secrets in his past and stuff, too. But it's just we're building up all these contrast and and this film more than or this story i guess more than some of jane austen's others even though you know pride and prejudice obviously is setting up a a dynamic between pride and prejudice sense and sensibility it almost feels like every character in the story is either hashtag team sense or hashtag team sensibility like they are really clearly defined in those two lines and the way that those interact is really interesting um and are we going to just go to go get into spoilers now and just get through the mm-hmm. <laughs> story? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what ends up happening is uh, that Marianne's uh, love interest with John Willoughby, he ends up being a total cad. Uh, mm-hmm. He ditches her, marries some other girl for money, um, and then she kind of has this slow, unromantic uh, love evolution i guess with uh colonel brandon who's more reserved um but it's it's not very exciting at that point she's had her her whirlwind love romance that almost kills her honestly uh and then she kind of has a more subtle love story with colonel brandon whereas eleanor who basically gives up on edward because he never hears from her or she never hears from him and then she finds out that he was engaged to someone else the whole time that he doesn't love anymore. And then that all blows up. And again, more plot, plotty plot stuff happens. Uh, And (laughs) then he, he kind of rides in 
on his horse and proposes to her in a much more kind of gallant and romantic way. So there's a there's a sort of reversal of expectations in the way that it all ends up. But the setup and then the the long drawn out process of getting through all of these and there's so much like intricacy in the secrecy and the the delivery of information that happens throughout it that is just really really fascinating. Yeah, no, it's another plot that you just love. Um, you also, you always kind of get a sense with Jane Austen novels that they're gonna have a happy ending. Actually, I think without exception, they'll have happy endings. Um, and you kind of, you, you kind of know like, oh, these characters are gonna work out whatever's going on with them. And the fun thing is watching them go figure yeah. it out. And it also I think takes there was someone a quote who's just in Becoming really, Jane that I'm not sure if it's accurate, but it sounds really accurate. Uh, where in Becoming Jane, she, uh, Jane Austen, character in the film, says at the very end, someone asks her, so will all your heroines uh, have happy endings? And she says, they'll all have a lot of trouble, but in the end, they'll get what they want. <laughs> Which is pretty accurate. They all go through a lot of distress, yeah. but it yeah. comes out on the end. I mean, that's that's a master storytelling right there, right? Even when you know where it's going, if you still enjoy the ride. Yeah. Um, you don't need to Shyamalan twist everything. You you can you can have it go right where you think it's going the entire time, and just have us the 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 fun of Jane Austen novels is wanting stuff for the characters so bad because you yeah. get invested in their lives so easily because she writes characters so well they all just feel so real and you're like just do it do the thing <laughs> we know you need to do to be happy just do it yeah so I will say that there's. As overall, as like a um, adaptation, and this is probably the one that I have the the most input on this from because I literally read the book and then immediately watched ah. the film afterwards. Um, yeah, see, I've not read this book, so I, I kind of appreciate this one almost as your your kind of standard exemplary Jane Austen adaptation from from the nineties and early. 2000s. It is. I would say, yeah, I standard is is probably a pretty good term for it like in terms of the way that the, the style is done it's very kind of straightforward as a period piece but it's just really well done um and as a story adaptation it does really well too it doesn't take a lot of liberties but there's one thing that i really wanted from it that it that i don't know why they couldn't have worked it in um which is this element where in the film when uh, alan rickman's character comes and tells eleanor that Willoughby has, uh, he gives his side of this whole story where um, he he has a, a relation, uh, I guess she would be his niece, um, who was um, taken advantage of by Willoughby and now has a child from this uh, interaction and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then he kind of just throws in at the end, uh, but I do think that he was planning to marry Marianne before he realized that he was going to be totally broke. Uh, so it wasn't all uh, faked on his side. Like it wasn't all just a show in the yeah, he book. Wasn't, though, he wasn't, he wasn't a Wickham. Right, right. But in the book, there's a whole monologue where Willoughby comes to the house as Eleanor is um, in her, or not Eleanor, but Marianne is in her sickness and they're not sure if she's going to live or die. And he comes and basically confesses his whole side of the story and says, I really did care. I gave up the happiest days of my life um, that I was with you guys 
for money because I thought that that's what I wanted. And now I realize my wife is terrible. She doesn't care about me. We both got we, what we wanted, which was just to have money, but we don't care about each other. Uh, and so he has this whole monologue, which was really intense and shows a lot of really intricate character development on his side that is kind of stripped out of the movie and turned into like one shot of him watching oh, the wedding at the very end. Um, but yeah. I didn't think that it was something that would be very difficult to have included. I kind of get it. It has. I, I think one of the big differences between books and movies is the rate at which you digest them. Because you can, you really yeah. sit with a book. It's a book is a multi-day, often a multi-week endeavor, um, that you you sit with for a long time, and you really think about everything going on. Even if you're not consciously thinking about it, your mind processes it. Um, but with a movie, you're over and done within like two, two and a half hours. It might have been to, they, there might have been a judgment call made that it was too much for an audience to really go with over the course of the movie or it might have distracted away from the story of the main two girls to give him that yeah. kind of redemption at the end. Yeah, because they did they did focus a little more on on the Colonel Brandon uh, plot line and stuff like that. And they gave a little bit more to Lucy Steele, uh, too, where I don't think she was staying with them at the house in London, although they met up a lot. Um, but she's just annoying as crap. She's the one that was engaged to Edward and then <laughs> ditches him for his brother, like right before they're supposed to be married. Again, uh, she's really good at making hateable characters. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that's sense and sensibility. There's so much good dynamics and contrasts and stuff in that one. Yeah, um, it's a good one to start off with though, because it's a pretty, pretty standard adaptation. Yeah, it's a solid film version of the book where you take out just as much as you need to to get the the point of the movie across in two hours yeah 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 um all right shall we move on to northanger abbey then yes let's move on to the secret life of i mean northanger abbey jason take it away northanger abbey from 2007 Young Catherine's penchant for the popular and sensational gothic novels of her day lead to an unfortunate misunderstanding that could interfere with matters of the heart and marriage. All right, so this, is, this isn't this is the first novel that Jane Austen wrote, but it is one of the first stories that she worked on. Parts of it exist dating all the way back to Catherine on the bow, or the bower um, and kind of in, in, intermingled with it there. Um, if I don't know if you guys remember from the intro, but I mentioned that the protagonist from Catherine on the Bower later became Lady Susan. Uh, the original name of the character in uh, Northanger Abbey was Susan. Um, so it's kind of all stemming from the same plant, but different uh, flowers, if you will. You imagine uh, Jane Austen just has like a stack of characters and a stack of names and she just makes and matches. Basically, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and those those characters are often just based off of people in her real life. Um, although we don't know too over much about them. It's not like we have Instagram accounts from that day. Although that would be wild. Um, <laughs> I think that was a high school project we had to do. It sounds like, you know what? I don't think we had Instagram when we were in high school, Jonathan. I think oh, that, yeah. Okay. To be fair, I think it was Facebook, but I think, I think we're all, we're, we're old now. Don't forget we're, we're old now. So I think Instagram was like college for us. Um, but yeah, this is, this is definitely a story that kind of rings with that new author flair to it, where you're essentially writing about storytelling. Yeah, it's a um, book about books. 
it's a book. It's a book about books, and it's a book about the books that were popular when Jane Austen first started really reading and writing in the seventeen eighties, seventeen nineties, and uh, not even popular, but like like dime shelf popular. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's the it's the really easy to grab like the the gothic horror stuff that's like you know they just write whatever is sensational just so that people will keep buying was, them and was, you just it take it on Shonda vacation Rhymes and finish the, it in two day. days <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah i'm sure there's there's lots of um connections we could make i think the main one that i always come back to with this is that it's it's so quixotic uh in the fact of she goes she lives at home for so long reads all these novels uh and then the first taste that she has of the real world she just like imputes all of that gothic horror like sensationalism into what's otherwise a mostly ordinary and boring situation but that's the whole thing and this this story this kind of don quixote thing of putting these romanticized uh these sensationalized ideas from fiction into real life uh in an extreme kind of a way still carries like a lot of weight like we see this story come up over and over and over again um and I think of really specifically like the secret life of Walter Mitty, specifically the Danny Kay version. But also you've got like hot fuzz with uh, Nick Frost character. Um, I'm I'm thinking of a film that I can't put a name to, but I'm sure it has Kevin Hart and someone who per- are pretending to be cops and they just watch cop shows. Uh, but, you know, that story is very much alive and well. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that you can almost guarantee is relatable if someone's reading the content because they're probably obsessed with the content too. Mm. Um, so it's almost like a guaranteed audience for it. Um, and plus, I feel like it's just good therapy for newer creators to do works of that nature, if that makes sense. Like it, it's kind of sussing out like who do you want to be as a creator in a sense while also kind of processing her own experience growing up with those kinds of stories. Um, But I also love that in this adaptation, even though like she makes this mistaken guess and the, uh, the guy who she thinks is a murderer is really dark and gloomy. There's almost like this kind of like sense of humor to the story as well. Well, yeah, technically all of Jane Austen's novels are comedies in one form or another. Yeah. I mean, in the Greek sense, for sure. And definitely in like just I mean, the fact even that in a satirical sense, like even some of the ones that are a little more, uh, you know, either on the romantic side or the more dramatic side, they all have like a satirical jab at Jane Austen's own like class status. You know, it's it's the ridiculousness of the ordinary in a lot of ways. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um this is also probably the uh, lowest key love story out of all of Jane Austen's books. Or, yeah, or very all, understated. I, you know what? I didn't read the book. I only watched the movie. But it felt like the romance was kind of like the stakes, right? Like it was it was hers to lose, but it wasn't the main story. The main story was her um, obsession with the idea of like this gothic murder that happened. Yeah. Or may or may not have happened. <laughs> may or may not have happened. Yeah. Uh, 
and yeah, and then the, there's also the the hateable side characters, like the the friends who are trying to pull her away from um, the really nice guy and stuff like that. Uh, also, a very yeah. simple production. Like this is definitely yeah. So I do want to get into that BBC too. This is the very made for made TV. For TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, TV style. Although movie, it very has simple. some big names in it. Well, now I mean, uh, Felicity Jones. I don't know how much she had done, but now she's been in Rogue One. Uh, oh, and a uh, Theory of Everything a few years before that. Um, but I imagine this was pretty early on in her career. Yeah, it looks like she had done some TV stuff before doing some feature films. So uh, I was surprised to see her in that. And then also, who's the other one? Uh, Carrie Mulligan. So yeah, but but on the whole, it is. I mean, not that the story calls for like a lot of production value beyond a castle, which is very kind of pivotal. And the castle stuff works. Like they have some really cool castley sets and stuff. But yeah, I mean, got castles in England. It's, <laughs> but it's not the most like you know dramatically dramatically lit like most cinematic type thing like literally for her flashbacks or for her little imaginations they just turn it black and white uh and that kind of thing but it it serves it all serves the purpose yeah yeah it's definitely um it's also less common uh jane austen story which is interesting to take a look at i think this and persuasion are probably the two lesser known Stories, well, Lady Susan as well, probably. Yeah, besides the the shorter fiction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, is, it is just so stripped down. Like, the performances are solid. They do a good job making the danger seem real in uh, uh, Felicity Jones's character's mind, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's that's very the thing subjective is, in its take. Yeah, that you have to really sell it on that because... The, the whole point is that the actual events are not interesting. Like the stakes are that uh, Mr. Darcy's dad thought that she was rich and she's not. So he's not happy with her. Uh, but you have to build it up way bigger than that to kind of get into the headspace of Felicity Jones character and how intense she's kind of feeling all of these things that are really not a huge deal. Yeah, no, it only works because she her her the whole story is about her imagination consuming her world, and it only works if we buy that as yeah. an audience and are there with her if we're in her headspace. Um, even if at the same time we're kind of removed from that headspace as well because we are the audience, um, which gives us two views on the same thing occurring at the same time, which is pretty successful storytelling. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. Anything else on our thing or Abby? <laughs> no, nah, I don't think so. Let's move on to Love and Friendship from 2016. Jason, take it away. Love and Friendship from 2016. Lady Susan Vernon uses her whip-smart charm and wiles to dominate her way through gentle society to find successful matches for both herself and her daughter with two rich and unassuming men, Reginald de Courcy and Sir James Martin. All right, Alex, so Love and Friendship is another one where the story uh, actually still remains epistolatory. Hopefully this will be the last time I have to say that. Um, I, I'm really interested. This is one of the ones that I didn't go back and read, um, but I'm I'm so interested in how much of the interactions are pulled from the story versus just made up for the film because some of them are so ridiculous. 
Um, and this one is we're moving now out of the sphere of just like straight period piece into a more like modern uh, 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 Wes Anderson-y stylized mm. kind of a thing. So here's the thing, Jonathan. Please tell me why this is not stylized. No, this is stylized. The, the thing is, when we think about something like Sense and Sensibility and we're like, it's not stylized. It is stylized. Yeah. Um, it, it, but but the thing is, you can either. There's different ways to stylize something. So a lot of the period pieces from the uh, late 70s through the early um, 2000s, actually, kind of take this approach to period pieces, especially set in older England, where they just kind of wash everything out in this sort of sepia tone. Um, and everyone's uh, uh, wardrobes tend to be really dulled down. Uh, earth tones, yeah. Earth tones, a lot of stuff like that. Like we watched, um, oh, what's the um, what's the one we watched on the uh, movie nights with the pork lady? Yeah, Gwyneth, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma. That, that one is one I always think about because they just give everyone like the same color clothes and it all just washes together. And so then you go and see watch something like Love and Friendship and Emma and you're like, wow, this is so stylized. It's so bright. If you go back to like the 1960s and look at period pieces from there, um, everyone went early Technicolor and when uh, color film was just really becoming popular, everyone is wearing bright colors. Something like My Fair Lady. Um, there's another one I'm thinking of that's set in France that has very bright colors to it. Um, if you look at uh, the color prints that exist from the day and age, people tend to wear bright color clothes. Um, so, yes, it's stylized in the sense that there's very uh, in-your-face conscious uh, acknowledgement of fashion and style. And probably everyone's dressed a little more fancy than they could probably be able to dress themselves. But there's also a sense of style to washing everything out and making it feel distant in that sense of making it ever, ever, always sepia tone. Um, Agreed. Let me let me tones. rebut one more time um, because I, I will say that sure the the style of various period pieces kind of fluctuates over time, um, and when I say non-stylized versus stylized, I'm kind of going on a baseline of what we expect from period pieces up through kind of the mid to late 90s. Um, but I will say Love and Friendship goes even beyond just kind of a, a bright, brightly colored and and uh, aesthetic stylization into a self-awareness. Yeah, like it, it has a self-awareness like it's, it's a Shakespeare play. Yeah, like it's a Shakespeare play or a silent film uh, where they they come on, they have literally a hero shot with a spotlight on them and a title, uh, which is often like very uh, uh, either, again, meta or just kind of funny on its on its own. And then there's also elements of uh, introducing titles into the story, um, almost in a sense like I'm trying to think of another example, but the most. Uh, ready to hand one is in Sherlock when they show like texts and stuff like that on screen, but they do that with a letter here and they show oh, yeah. the text on the screen as he's being read. So there is a, an element of stylization yeah, to love and friendship sure. that is not common, even in period for pieces sure. right now. For sure. That, that is a hundred, that is a hundred percent true. I think the big thing that I wanted to point out was that not everybody wore earth tones. I think, I don't know why, but that always <laughs> infuriates me 
whenever I watch something from the 80s or the 90s, the one I, I really always think of is Out of Africa with Meryl Streep, which is a movie I just cannot stand. Um, one, because it's Oscar Beatty is crazy, and two, because the whole thing just looks like someone spilled a bucket of cream over the entire movie, <laughs> um, which is not an unpleasing tone. It just doesn't feel realistic to me because not everyone gets together and decides to wear the same color. That just doesn't happen unless it's New York City in the winter and then everyone's wearing black because everyone's given up on life until the sun's <laughs> returned. But others outside of that, Alex not everyone ever gets together. I'm, that's just an observation. Okay. Uh, speaking of, of Oscar Beatty and just kind of giving a context to the uh, distribution of the film, this film was... Uh, made and premiered at Sundance, uh, so it kind of ran the film festival circuit, uh, and then it was picked up by Amazon. But I think that that kind of has an element of that goes into this style because a lot of times the film festival films are trying to add something new or do something that stands out that gets them noticed or attention. I mean, obviously, all films are trying to get attention, get butts and seats, and that kind of thing. But I think that that is another element that goes into adding some of these more kind of quirky things. And also, I think that Love and Friendship does a really good job of bringing us into a uh, period that we may be in now. I don't know. We'll kind of get into that when we get to Emma. But of taking that kind of underlying satire that I mentioned that Jane Austen has in her writing, mostly through kind of the the narration and direction and stuff like that that happens outside of the actual lines that the characters say. Uh, so we kind of, in the 90s and early 2000s, we had a lot of very dramatic and very, like, romantic, uh, uh, you know, if, in a general sense, kind of, quote-unquote, chick-flicky Jane Austen adaptations. And now I think with Love and Friendship and Emma, we're taking a lot of that humor and that satire and kind of putting it in the forefront uh, not only aesthetically, but also in the the performances and even the filmmaking, like I'm saying, with some of the, the text overlays and stuff. Oh, very, very, very true. Um, and that kind of works specifically with this story of Lady Susan. You almost Susan. have to do it with this story to not yeah. hate it. Yeah, yeah. And here, she's, she's unapologetically... Terrible. So, so here's the thing. She is terrible. I don't think anyone would be like, wow, I like her. She's a great person. But I do think there's something appealing to her in the sense of her being a woman with power that she can operate with in a time when women typically didn't have comparable power in this sort of society. And I see the appeal of that, especially when we look at like the, some of the juvenilia that uh, Jane Austen wrote. And you look at, like again, that phrase, anarchic uh, stories, of female uh, power going into a world where they didn't have, like the biggest decision they could make was like whether or not to get married. And even then they didn't really have much of a decision over that. Um, like they could barely go into business for themselves. Jane Austen basically needed the support of her entire family um, multiple times to become a published author. And even then she didn't put her name on the cover for fear of being looking like an apostate. Um, so I, well, well, I don't think anyone would be like, wow, that's a good use of power. I do think there's something appealing to watching someone who normally wouldn't have any power in a situation, just run wild with that power. <laughs> yeah. Just go crazy. At the very least 
refreshing in the type of literature. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And and to th- and and to know that it came from the time period it did is pretty neat. Um, so she I kind totally of gets see a, why she's kind of appealing in that sense. She's also awful. Yeah. Uh, she kind of gets she, a, a, an ironic uh, uh, comeuppance at the end, though. She really does. That. I think it's also an interesting contrast, just going off of that point of uh, kind of female empowerment, if you will, the contrast between this and Emma, in which Emma, from a much more kind of youthful fancy standpoint, also takes it too far, but then has the good sense to uh, dial it back when she realizes yeah. that she yeah. can't control everything or she shouldn't at the expense of everyone that she cares yeah. about. And, and Emma was the last book that Jane Austen wrote. Yeah. Um, and so that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of a nice bookend. Yeah. Yeah. It, it totally does. It's like, Oh, what if I had all this power? Imagine all the chaos I could create. And then I think, Oh, if I had this that, power, maybe I should use this responsibly. I think there's a note that Jane Austen wrote about Emma uh, before she started writing it, where she said, I'm going to write uh, a heroine which nobody will much like but me, I suspect. Uh, which I love is Emma. kind of appropriate. I think, yeah, honestly, yeah, she's really annoying at, in the book, at, but at she the, at the has start, to be I'm for like, the story. At the start, I'm like, girl, you need to fix, fix your ways. Um, but definitely by the end, I'm like, okay, you've learned your lesson. You're good. Yeah. You... you you can do it. And, and you know, that's also a pretty good way to, to write a story is to write a protagonist that everyone hates, but they get their comeuppance in the end. Um, and one of my favorite pieces of like, this is definitely a movie with a lot of in your face style and work. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite pieces of technique used in this movie is actually pretty subtle in that one of those closing scenes where her daughter's singing and about to be engaged to um, the more the guys she was pursuing the two for rich guys. Half the movie, yeah, yeah, one of the guys she was pursuing for the oh, duration true. of the movie. Yeah, there were like three. Um, she it, she kind of fades into the background as the camera pulls back and places other characters in front of her as the camera pushes in on her daughter, who's standing on some steps and therefore above the rest of the audience. Her daughter, mm. who's been basically bullied Trampled by on. her, like yeah. just the I, so I could totally see you excusing how she treats, and uh, I could see anyone excusing how she treats and manipulates all of the men in this book. But the way she 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 is to her daughter is just unacceptable. By any the one scene where she takes standard. her away from uh her in laws and. Like they're they realize that she's being torn away, like literally feels like a scene of um, almost super villain, like psychological manipulation. Like it gets really messed up at certain points. Yeah, she points. does some really dirty, like emotional and mental abuse in this movie. Like she gets she gets real low. Like she yeah. sinks pretty low by the end of the movie. Uh, she gaslights and she always has a high opinion of herself too. This that's the other thing is that she never really comes around to it. She, except for I the think, one admission at some point that she enjoys her daughter's company more than she did. That's like the only like line of kind of sympathy that she gets. I think I think she thinks that this is the game and this is how you play it and every anything goes. Oh, it's definitely a game. Yeah, kind of kind of like a love and war, and that if anyone uh, else brings morals into it, well, then 
they're a fool for bringing morals into it, which is unique because we know that's directly contrary to Jane Austen's actual views on society, mm-hmm. love, and marriage. Um, that's why I think this this story is also very interesting and also interesting just as like kind of a shorter piece of work aside from her novels because her novels are so riddled with like moral characters and characters who uphold their morality uh, against all the other things that the world throws at them and, you know, terrible characters and misleadings and stuff like that. But Love and Friendship just kind of she I feel like it's a very uh, early way of her just playing with character and playing with something that's like exciting and fun as this like basically evil mastermind kind of a uh, uh, puppet master um, character before she kind of settles down and and goes to express her actual views on how people should should behave yeah yeah um yeah anybody who ever calls jane austen's work frivolous isn't is a fool <laughs> and you should tell them that to their face um indeed yeah um because because wow she gets into some really deep basic human stuff that is relatable to everybody and yeah Give her a read. If you if you haven't read through all of her books, I recommend it. I still plan on doing it sometime this year. I have a criminally long backlog of uh, of audible books right now that I'm working through because I have a tendency to like go out and buy a bunch and then just read like one or two because <laughs> I'm just awful like that, I guess. But eventually I'm going to be getting to the rest of Jane Austen's novels. Jonathan, I think you've finished all of them. Uh, I'm about two hours away from finishing all of them. Wow, so. Jonathan, slacking. <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're incredibly witty, incredibly insightful. Like, like these movies that we're talking about are great, um, and and the story can be conveyed, and a lot of the characters and wit can be conveyed through the film. But there's a lot of insight that comes just from her writing and her authorship that really should be experienced through the book. Um, yeah. One more thing about Love and Friendship, because you did mention that this was made by a streaming site and made for streaming. I do think that, and I've seen this more and more in the past few years, that the kind of like indie darling wonderland that streaming movies have become, where creators can just make whatever they want and get bit like basically blank checks from these uh, streaming studios has become more and more friendly and appealing for people who like to do stylized stuff. Um, one, because you have the freedom to do it. And two, I think it stylized stylization pulls off really well on a streaming service in a world where there's so much you could click on at any point in time, something with a lot of readily immediate and appealing style or flash to it is more likely to grab the streamer's eye than something with a washed out, gauzy feel like and, uh yeah like there's another Emma. there's another really interesting aspect i think to streaming in that whereas with theaters i feel like the the aim was to please the most general uh common denominator whereas on streaming it's it's a lot easier to shoot for a lot of very niche interests so you you don't have to be afraid of not picking up the whole uh, audience because if you get enough people who want to watch just that and also this niche over here and this niche over here, then it gives you a lot more freedom to do things on the fringe. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, I just want to get that out there. Let's go on to Emma 2020, Emma period 2020. Jason, take it away. Emma from 2020. Emma Woodhouse has all the manners and intelligence to be desired in a young English lady, and she loves to use them to play matchmakers for others. But when she interferes in her new friend Harriet Smith's love life, Emma is about to find the dangers in playing puppet master with your loved ones and friends. Fun fact, Jonathan. This was the last movie that I saw in a real theater. Oh, fun. Yeah, also fun fact, uh, this is the first film that... (laughs) I paid $20 to watch digitally because we were discussing on the bonus podcast last year. Um, stay tuned mm-hmm. for details about uh, subscribing. Uh, now now it's on HBO. Yeah, now it's on HBO. Um, but this was like at the very beginning of the pandemic. Emma was still in its theatrical run. And so they released it early to stream, but at a crazy price. And I paid it to watch it to get that experience. And guess what? It's just the same as watching any other movie from home just a couple months earlier than when it would be $7. But I will not say that it wasn't worth it because this is a great movie. Yeah, no, I love this movie a lot. It's one of my favorites. It's very stylized. Again, I, I tend to like stylization. Um, and And that's just because for me, it's like, I like when people take advantage of everything they can to convey character on screen and, and convey different parts of the story or tone on screen. And to me, that's what the story uses its stylization for really well. Um, all the characters have very distinct outfits. They're bright and poppy and fun, and they kind of fit with, like, I guess what we're moving into with the 2020s aesthetic. I don't really know. We're kind of working with Pastels. that right now. Pastels. Um, very, very bright. Um, but it also means that everyone has a very distinct outfit you know uh emma herself is always very well put together with bright colors everything's very well tailored her friend harriet smith um is kind of downplayed she kind of has like she looks like she stepped out almost from one of those 1990s jane austen movies um uh meanwhile her uh you know you have big collar stuffy boy the uh vicar over there you have Mr. her Elton, father yeah. who's kind of stuffy it's funny they really do a lot with the colors the men wear uh mr elton is the most extreme version but everyone else has different and then there's mrs elton who just goes even further with my gosh hair bow you mean the who from whoville (laughs) the who from whoville yeah i mean Um, she is she is absurd over the top but she also looks like somebody who thinks she knows how to dress herself and then suddenly got a bunch of money and then went That's for it, exactly. but clearly doesn't have the class to be able to dress herself. And even down to like the locations that are fairly stylized, but convey what they need to convey very well. The church conveys what it needs to convey very well. Mm-hmm. The uh, tailor shop, which ends up functioning like the community center, ends yeah. up uh, create being what it needs to be very well. And I think the tailor shop's in the book, but it's a very small part of the book. Um, Actually, no, it's, it's pretty big. Like they, they okay. make a big deal about... Ford's is the place to be, you know, if you come to town, you have to buy something at Ford's. So, yeah, that is a pretty central location. And they have fun with that shop. They make it fun. They make it enticing. They make it like you want to be there in that shop and uh, sets a perfect stage for you to engage with the characters there. Um, The uh, little cramped room that her friend that she likes to make fun of lives in with her with her mother. Um, Even even (laughs) the uh, the. Uh, her house is really 
nice and traditional. It's very nice looking. Um, it kind of has like that noble smart look to it. And then um, I can't I can't remember his name. All I Knightley. remember is the nightly. That's it. All I remember is the absolute boldness of like the first shot he's in being like him butt ass naked <laughs> in front of a window and just being like, you know what? You know what you're selling here? Good for you. Uh, yeah. And then he puts on his his Regency era underwear, which is basically just a dress. His house is amazing. I love his house. His house is so good. Everything, it's big. It's huge. He clearly has lots of money, but it's also completely empty. Like, it's, he's so clearly alone. Everything is covered up with cloths. He basically airs the dust out just to show everyone around, and there's still, like, no furniture or nobody else there. It's basically a museum that he's, like, entombed himself in. Um, But all of this stylized stuff that tells us something about these characters is something that we don't get in the other version of Emma that we watched, which I still enjoyed, but it was, I, I you just know felt like there was so much missed opportunity there. I, I actually want to disagree with you on that. I think that the, uh, the, the 96 version of Emma lacks only in comparison. I think when I, watching it, if you pay attention to kind of in context of those type of period pieces like Sense and Sensibility uh, and even the BBC versions of like Northanger Abbey and Pride and Prejudice, there is a lot of exaggeration. It's just really not to this extent. So like even um, uh, Miss El- Mrs. Elton has like a ridiculous hat. It's not as crazy as the hair bow, but it is pretty ridiculous in the context and um, and uh, the the poor old woman, like she's very kind of like in stature, she's very small. She's very kind of, um, you know, gives off kind of a, a weak sort of, uh, that's correct. You're totally right. And that's totally fair. I think it loses by that seventies through early two thousands style of period piece. Right. Um, I just say they, it's not so that much... they overlooked it. It's oh, just yeah. not no, totally a huge agree. aspect of the filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like it's a missed opportunity for me. And that's how I typically prefer my movies as well. Like, if you're going to tell a story, tell the story, you know? Go all the way, yeah. Yeah, there's there's no need to be subtle about it. There's there's some subtle things in, in Jane Austen's uh, storytelling. There's a lot of subtle uh, emotions uh, and, you know, slight connections. There's a lot that can be told through a look, which isn't forgone in either versions of Emma that we've seen. Uh, one, the, we should clarify, Emma 1996, we watched on the movie night uh, <laughs> for this week. Go ahead and join the Discord if you want to be on those movie nights. They're lots of fun. But back to the point, uh, yeah, I, I, I do think Emma 2020 just does a really good job of creating contrast yeah. uh, through its style that tells stuff about the characters. And again, all those things kind of bring out the underlying uh, satire and wink and nod nature of the story that otherwise you don't get across quite as much, but it's a really good way of just hammering home that although some of the things that happen in this are like just in the, in the way that Emma acts, it it can come off cruel. And yet there's kind of a, a tongue in cheek nature to the whole thing uh, anyway. And I think that that style gloss over the whole film helps you not forget that. 
Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that Emma is easily unlikable at the start of the movie. But for some reason, when I watched it the first time, which was the first my first experience with the narrative of Emma, um, I didn't hate her. I definitely saw a lot of flaws in her, but I, I really enjoyed watching her as well. She also yeah. seemed to me to be someone, even though she was ridiculous, she was insanely rich, which always kind of removes somebody from uh, most people's experience. There was something about her that was almost immediately understandable. Like I kind of get like, oh, she definitely thinks she's smarter than everyone else. She probably is smarter than everyone else, but she's using her powers for evil. That's always a terrible combination, isn't it? When you think you're smarter than everyone else and you actually live up to that thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you you don't have the responsibility of using it. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Emma in particular, um, they kind of have that reconciliation at the end. Nosebleed's great, by the way. That was hilarious. As far as I can tell, not in the book. It was such a good addition. It It was was. such a good moment. And it was such a humanizing moment as well. I think that's important too. I want to say there's another moment that is not in the book that I almost want to give more props to the movie for, um, which this is somewhat spoilers. But and to be fair, I'm very close to finishing this book. But I, I skipped around and I think I got the gist of how it wraps up. And in the film... Uh, after Emma has totally destroyed all of Harriet's uh, uh, love interest prospects, um, she goes back to Robert Martin, the farmer, and gives him the picture of herself that she drew uh, when she was trying to get him together with Mr. Elton. Um, But I don't think that happens in the book. I think they just kind of meet after Harriet leaves because she's angry with Emma, and then they meet and they get engaged uh, apart from Emma's influence, but I really love that element of Emma going and herself trying to make that reconciliation. Yeah, good, I think it helps her change. character a lot. I, I like that a lot. I didn't realize that. That's good. Yeah, and the same thing—the same thing that I like about uh, um, when she goes to call on Mrs. Bates, uh, or rather Miss Bates, after the insult at the picnic. Um, that that scene does happen in the in the book, but I think that the way that they convey her, uh, just the it's it's such a, a subtle scene of just conveying that apology and forgiveness through looks um, and through attitude rather than any like formal words is really yeah. well played off in the film. Yeah, no, it's it's very rare. again that that little subtle look, which is like a key tool of Jane Austen storytelling. Uh, that's just like, yeah, we, uh, there's a look of apology and a look of, uh, of forgiveness in there. And that's all that needs to be said there. One of my favorite, uh, there's kind of like a costume design arc for one of the characters that I really love. And it's for, Mr. Um, no, but he's great. It's for, um, oh, what's, what's her name? Is is it Jane? It's the cousin that is always talked oh, about Jane Fairfax. Yeah. Jane Fairfax who shows up. And at first she's really kind of unassuming. And then she kind of makes some moves and gets attention. And as she does so in society and starts like doing her bust out piano scene where she's suddenly really good at piano, which is an incredible scene. The looks on everyone's faces. Oh yeah. is just perfect. You know, she starts to dress nicer and nicer until she's almost on the same level as Emma in terms of, her finish um, and how tailored everything she's wearing is. Um, 
that's really cool. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting about the Emma narrative, and maybe it's different in the book, but I had this experience both in the 2020 version and the 1996 version. I didn't find any of Mr. Knightley's criticisms of Emma like that bad. I mean, they were all true. Like, well, yeah, that's I, the that's the point is he is and they make this very clear, like from the beginning of the of the novel, he is the only one who will speak the truth to her. Everyone else just flatters her because, you know, in most respects, she's very respectable. She's very smart. She's very witty, all this stuff. And no one really wants to criticize her. And Mr. Knightley is the only one who will come in and nitpick her behavior at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense to me because at the end, like the, she, he's like apologizing for it. I'm like, I get why you'd be apologizing in this situation because um, you're in love with this woman. But also like you're you were correct. <laughs> Yeah, like she was he's be, just she was he's kind awful. of supposed to be the relief or the exception to the way that she's used to being treated by everyone else in the story. I gotcha. I gotcha. And also, like, he did do it like he could have had these conversations with her in a not asshole way, which <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Um. So I will say there's there's actually an element which one of the things that we both love about this movie is um the dad played by uh, uh Bill Nye. And his he's like obsessed with having these screens is, placed is around him. Book? It is actually downplayed in the film. He is a full-on hypochondriac Wait, really? in the book. He will okay. not leave his house. He won't let anyone else leave or like eat stuff that he thinks is going to to disagree with them. Like he is he's unmanageable. She can't leave the house uh, without like talking him into. Uh, her safety <laughs> beforehand. Yo, okay, that makes much more sense. I I definitely picked up on it in the movie that he was a hypochondriac, both versions. Um, mm -hmm. It's really downplayed in the 1996 version, but he's just not that big of a character in the 1996 yeah, right. version as he is in 2020. Um, but yeah, he's but definitely obsessed. The screens are just a nice way to get get that across and still just kind of be like a fun, silly kind of side thing. It also makes for a nice character moment. Anything, any, anytime you can get characters to clearly express emotion or intent on screen through physical action yeah. that isn't exactly, that isn't just outright saying whatever it is that they're feeling, that's or great. Or props, and, even better. Or prop. So essentially, that's what I'm talking about. There's a scene towards the end where he gives um, Knightley and Emma privacy to resolve their situation um, by essentially calling for screen screens to be moved to block certain yeah. drafts until he's just completely boxed in <laughs> in screens, which is hilarious. And it's up. It's been a through line throughout, so it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it's just like the final culmination that also, and it doesn't seem like much of a hiccup because it's kind of tacked on to the end. That also explains why Emma doesn't want to leave her father at the end of the yeah. book. And Knightley's like, yeah, no, I get it. He's he, he needs help. Um, also, it seems like the father and Knightley are on pretty good terms. Um, yeah, definitely. I think actually Knightley's family is the one that I don't exactly know how Regency era property management worked, but I think Knightley owns the larger portion of the land and basically Emma's family is is well-to-do, but they're kind of living on his like broader uh, land in their own house. So yeah, there's, there's a bit of a status thing, but they're very good friends and he always is over there and hanging out and stuff. I gotcha. I understand. Okay. No. Yep. 
Oh, one of the things that I really liked about this version is how important the uh, friendship between Emma and Harriet feels to both of them, especially over the course yeah. of the book. Like, it feels like... Which is also to the benefit of Emma's character because she's a little more dismissive of Harriet in the uh, in the novel. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's only yeah, so much like, you can imply, you can show in the film without just making her totally unlikable. Yeah, yeah, but it definitely... It, you definitely see like the development of the friendship go from, oh, you're essentially Emma kind of adopts Harriet as like her project. Um, yeah, it's so almost speak. almost a Pygmalion type of a situation. Yeah, yeah, but she she essentially like comes to like her, and then by the end of the book, she's very upset that she wronged her friend so bad, and yeah. that's one of the important things that kind of convinces her to change. Is like, oh. These people whose lives I'm <laughs> puppeting, uh, they're real people, and I care about them, and I want what's best for them, and that doesn't always mean that I know what's best for them. Sometimes I don't know what's best for them. I just need to support them, um, which is really nice. Her, her character arc in the 2020 version is really good. Yeah. Um, gosh, I love, I love <laughs> everything about the 2020 version. I love the confrontation after the picnic when Knightley dresses her down, and she yeah. kind of she tries to resist in like almost a Lady Susan-like manner and then just crumbles. Oh, um, and we mentioned it, but we should we should definitely touch on the nosebleed before we <laughs> move into overall. The nosebleed is amazing. It's so good. And the the way that it's set up is perfect. And the, the pacing of the scenes, because we've just had this scene where Emma and Harriet uh, finally settle their uh miscommunication about who harriet likes which emma has been thinking that he likes she likes frank churchill who turns out has been engaged to jane fairfax the whole time as like this secret underplot thing um but harriet did not care about him at all she was uh in love with mr knightley um and emma has just figured out that she's in love with mr knightley but at this point she has progressed so far in her uh, character that she's basically willing to give him up for Harriet because she's already done so much to screw over Harriet. Um, and then they meet and then Mr. Knightley proposes to her. And so all of these like intricacies are like converging in her brain at the same time. And it kind of just explodes into a nosebleed while she's trying to accept this invitation and reject it at the same time uh, in a way that's so visual and so unexpected that it's kind of perfect. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great moment because the uh, I think one of the important parts about Emma's storyline is that she definitely thinks she's better than everyone else. So anytime she has a humbling moment, it's a progression of her story, of her character's arc. So yeah. to have such a important moment there is just nice for her arc. Also, it's a nice it's nice because it gives us the prototypical Jane uh, or Jane Austen. Oh, it's around a willow tree in a billowy uh, English meadow. And they're going to talk about their feelings. And then that doesn't work out. And then they have to get down to having like a real human conversation awkwardly while her dad sits behind a bunch of screens, <laughs> um, yeah. which is closer to how reality works, works. Not that everyone's dad's behind a bunch of screens, but that love isn't uh, passionate conversations on a meadow it's more mm -hmm. like real talk on a couch. Again, Jane Austen kind of nitpicking the Jane Austen freaking gets of, it. <laughs> yeah, of literature. And basically 
I mean, she's basically credited with the modern idea of what novels are because of the way that she treated characters and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, she she did a lot for how we portray real characters and real stuff in novels, which, of course, leads us to film as well. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't have modern peak TV either without the focus on character that. Oh, absolutely. You see, especially that these books, especially the more extended um, progression of character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of speaks to there, there's so many Jane Austen miniseries. So many. So many. So, so, so many. Um, I have not seen our, them all, but I will venture to say that Colin Firth probably takes the cake. That's typically the most popular one. There's a <laughs> lot of really good ones. There's even some that are like uh, there's there's a lot of modern adaptations of which we did not include in this set, although we did include them on the extended list for this month. Uh, yeah, let's actually read off the extended list just because I haven't figured out how to work that into the yeah. podcast. Let's, yet. let's 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 <laughs> do that and slide into overall notes at the same time. All right. So our extended list of films that if you would like to continue watching um, about Jane Austen, uh, feel free to with these. Obviously, there's more, but these are the ones that we watched. A lot of these. Uh, I haven't seen all of them yet. Alex probably has. Um, but Clueless from 1995 is based on Emma. Uh, Emma from 1996 is based on Emma uh, Mansfield Park from 1999 Pride and Prejudice from 2005 which we covered a long time ago Becoming Jane from 2007 which we watched on the movie nights uh, based on Jane Austen's life it's a biopic uh, starring uh, Anne Hathaway and finally Austin Land from 2013 which is kind of a fun uh, Jane Austen slash West gosh it's a really fun one I don't know. Uh, it, Westworld, no, maybe. I mean, <laughs> technically, it's really extreme. Everyone always goes to, uh, I don't know why, but West Westworld, so here's the deal. Westworld is a LARP. Um, I hate to break it to all of you. It's, it's a LARP um, that goes terribly wrong. And this is also technically a LARP. Um, slash the Mr. Darcy experience sort of yeah, there you go thing like it's 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 kind of weird it's very good though um it is produced by stephanie meyer i don't think she had a lot oh, of say in the production itself because it, it there's certainly some twilight ish elements to it but it doesn't so like like i had a friend who like i don't I, even I know this, what that means in this context <laughs> it's it's hard to explain uh, you'd have to watch a lot of Twilight movies to get it, but we all know Twilight, and we all know how cringy it can be, um, and how okay, sappy cringy. it can be as well. Uh, um, okay, from the love triangle perspective. Yeah, and also kind of like there is a love triangle in it, uh, but it's a pretty good love triangle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was trying to explain this to one of my friends who really likes Jane Austen, uh, but the second I mentioned that it was produced by Stephanie Meyer, she like acted like I had asked her to drink poison. Uh, so, uh, and, and that's fair. I totally get, I totally get that expectation with Stephanie Meyer, but, um, this is a, this, it's actually one worth watching. Um, there's another one that I haven't seen yet because it's a BBC miniseries and I haven't had time for miniseries lately, but it's called Lost in Austin, um, which is about a girl who actually ends up, uh, in the Jane Austen universe dating Mr. Darcy while um, Elizabeth Bennett goes off to become uh, an author. 
Um, what? Yeah, no, it's pretty wild. There's a lot of really wild adaptations out there. Another yeah. one I saw that was really good is um, uh, the Jane Austen Book Club. It's not fabulous. Like, it's not like a really great movie, but it's pretty good. Um, and it shows like some of the appeal of like reading Jane Austen and some of like the difficult human elements of it. The resolution's pretty sappy on it. Um, I watched a lot of other ones. There's like a Bollywood one that's not worth your time. Um, <laughs> there are so many Pride and Prejudice adaptations. It's ridiculous. Yeah, there's like a um, there's a Mexican American one that's okay. It's about what you'd expect for for a modern set Jane uh, Austen adaptation. Um, and then there's just like a bajillion BBC miniseries. I think have they just. I, I kind of imagine that BBC just sort of set out to adapt all of them and has probably they've done, done it, it like by now. multiple times. They've, they've done some, like there's multiple Pride and Pride, Pride and Prejudice miniseries, I'm pretty sure. Mm, that makes sense. Interesting. So yeah, so those are uh, some other places that you can go if you're still interested. Um, but in talking about just the way that Jane Austen is adapted oh, in general. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yep. Bridget Jones's Diary. That's another modern set one. That yeah, is. I didn't realize that that was Pride and Prejudice until this month. And what's funny about that one is that Colin Firth plays... The Darcy character. Mr. Darcy once more. But this time he's like a depressed adult lawyer, which is just... And he, he's like 35. As opposed and to a lost, child lawyer? Well, that, uh, fair. Fair. The the funny thing is that he's he's like thirty five and he's lost all the will to live. It, it, oh gosh! It's, it's just it's such an interesting performance. Um, yeah, Wickham's terrible in that one. Uh, that one's interesting just because I've seen so many modern twists of the uh, Pride and Prejudice story uh, that are essentially just reduce it to the love triangle between Wickham Elizabeth. And and Darcy, and that's yeah. kind of like it. Sometimes there's a sister included, like in *Bride and Prejudice*, the Bollywood adaptation, but not always. Yeah. So yeah. So with all that in mind, going into just talking about generally how we can uh, look at these adaptations, I think we've already seen and talked through kind of the progression of what I won't call unstylized, but are sort of modern typical idea of what a period piece is um which again to your point about period pieces having a style pride and prejudice has been adapted as early as 1940 which we've both seen and as a very different style of period film uh completely different from our modern sensibility and just falls completely flat nowadays so that has kind of evolved into the more uh I call it like spunky type of style that we see in love and friendship and Emma. Uh, and along the way we get some just like really solid, uh, adaptations of the period of the story of the characters and stuff like that in, um, some of the earlier nineties and early 2000 adaptations. Uh, and yet also through all of these adaptations, we can see the lasting impact of these stories, like the way that they have uh, stuck around and the way that so many people are still affected by them, even who haven't read the books, but have seen the films. Like I know the 2005 uh, Pride and Prejudice is very popular. Um, obviously the Colin Firth miniseries as well. 
Um, the new Emma, I think, did pretty well. Uh, at least, I mean, to us, it did. Uh, and they're Emma's I mean, great, but they keep they keep coming back. We also you know? haven't seen we haven't seen the Oscar nominations for this year. Um, I for one would be flabbergasted if Emma didn't get a bunch of nominations for production design, like costuming and sets. Yeah, and here's a, a contention that I want to put up uh, in terms of talking about Jane Austen's work as a whole. And you had mentioned that very fancy word that I've already forgotten at the beginning of the podcast, Alex, about them kind of being confined in scope to kind solipsism? of her immediate, yeah, solipsism as far as her extending to sort of the realm of her own experience, which first of all, you know, you could make some defense for it in terms of write what you know, uh, that old um, aphorism. But also I kind of think of Jane Austen almost as like the Frank Capra of Regency era literature. I'm going to need you to explain this. So when we talked about Frank Capra, we kind of got to this point where Frank Capra thought of himself as creating films for the quote unquote little man, the every man that, you know, thinks that, you know, you think of sort of it's a wonderful life as kind of just the, uh, the standard of, of sort of Frank Capra films in terms of how it's about one guy who thinks that he has all these plans and these big ideas. And then he ends up realizing that the influence that he has in his own circle matters way more than whatever big plans he might've had, uh, when he was a kid and kind of giving an honor to that sort of humble, this is, these are my people. This is how I interact with them. And I just want to be the best person that I can be to the people that I interact with. And I think that's what Jane Austen kind of shows in her films over and over again is this is how we interact with the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. Again, like I mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't have to involve a big war or some kind of, uh, you know, fantasy alternate universe being broken into our, our thing or finding out that you're the chosen one. It can just be a matter of how do you interact with those people that you care about in order to live the most pleasant life? That's fair. I would say the only bone I have to pick with that comparison is that Frank Capra films typically end up playing into some sort of larger social ideology of, of some sort about like how society as a whole should act. Um, Whereas Jane Austen tends to be a little more pared down in scope. Yeah, but I would say that she she kind of approaches morality in the way that Frank Capra approaches society. That's fair. She has a very clear idea of 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 what is a moral way to act, and and she demonstrates that through the various characters that she portrays. That's fair. I I, I could see that. It's not going to be a flag I carry, but I totally respect yeah. <laughs> you waving. It's not that, one to one, flag. but as a as as it goes, as far as like just thinking about the different types of stories that are told in various mediums, that's kind of where I would land her in terms of film history and specifically stuff we've covered. Okay, so what uh, what adaptations outside of the main four we talked about were your favorite? Outside of the ones that we talked about, because I haven't watched a ton of me for and it could be it could be it could be miniseries as well. If you watch those, I'm going to have to revert to Pride and Prejudice because that's the one that I've seen the most of outside of these four. It's a good one. Um, 
And for that one, yeah, man, I really like the faithfulness of the Colin Firth series, but I also really like the kind of dreamy style of the 2005 version. They both have their drawbacks and their pros, but I like them both a lot. But I'm going to go with Colin Firth just so that no one gets too mad at me in the comments. That's fair. All That's the fair. comments that we get. Uh, and yourself, really, Alex, you watched way more than I did. I watched a lot. Uh, I really enjoyed a lot of them. Uh, Mansfield Park was really fun. The Jane Austen Book Club just kind of stuck with me for some reason. I don't know why. It was it was a lot of fun, and it was kind of about the experience of reading a lot of Jane Austen really fast. So I think it kind of it kind of hit at the same moment that I was watching a lot of Jane Austen uh, content really fast. Um, that was fun. Makes sense. Um, Austin Land is one I would, if I have to recommend one to our viewers and know who you are, I would say uh, Austin Land. All right. I, I, I would plug. say I would say check that one out. Um, I know it has Stephanie Meyer in it, but do check it out. <laughs> it is, it it is it is worth the hour and a half time that it takes. All right. Well, Alex, I think that'll kind of wrap up our conversation about Jane Austen, and in terms of our our new format um i'm kind of liking it i'm liking the discussion that we were able to have this month and i'm excited for this season to have a lot of uh very um intellectual conversations some very yes, distinguished very, very films smart, that we're going to be covering uh and more things you know like very literary uh but not next time next time we're going in a little bit of different direction and what direction is that alex <laughs> Sometimes, Jonathan, you just watch something and it's so bad, it's good. It um, is indeed. And we're and leaning that, into it next time because we've never that done... That is what we're going to be watching next time, <laughs> next month, we should say. Next month, yes. On the, uh, on the, on the, on the podcast. We have covered some quite more bad films, nights. but we have not covered films because they are bad yet. And now yeah. we're doing it. We, we are, we're literally taking the stance that uh, movies that are so bad that they're good... Or that they have a cult following because they're so bad, and that people enjoy watching them because they're so bad, is a genre. I feel like MST3K has already established that, um, oh, yeah. along with riff tracks. But we're gonna dive into it um, from a, we're a standpoint off of critical of analysis without uh, without just doing riffs. So we're gonna start, like you said, with some of the basics. One of the first people who really just made. Movies that I don't think he meant them to be bad, but they were, and people enjoyed them because they were bad. So Plan 9 from Outer Space from 1959 with Ed Wood. So yeah, Plan 9 from Outer Space is kind of the the original, so bad it's good movie, um, and sort of set the standard, even though no one actually sets out to recreate Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I think Bella Lugosi's in Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is oh, just yes, wild. Oh, which he's, he's like the did not yeah. even finish uh, before he passed away. Which oh, Gosh, there's I'm some gonna, fun factoids to get into about I'm that. I'm gonna movie. have to watch. I'm gonna have to watch the Ed Wood, Tim Burton movie. Uh, have you seen it? Because it's actually I'm hilarious. I, I'm sure it is. Uh, I, then we're gonna watch Birdemic: Shock and Terror from 2010. I love um, that film, which is just absurd. I don't. I don't even know where to start. It's it, one of the hardest things about this next month is going to be trying to do like traditional analysis, movie analysis on movies that just it's going like, to be they fun. don't follow yeah. any of the ideas or theories that we normally follow. And that's probably what, what we're going to be doing. I think about. a lot is 
trying to tra- to backtrace the thought process that led to the final product because that yeah. is going to be the most interesting angle to take on all of these. Oh, for sure, for sure. As well as like tracing like the development of this from just like a phenomena to a selling point. Because yeah. make no mistake, people were making money off of this long before um, Asylum came along. Like Roger Corman's entire career was ma- based oh, yeah. off of making uh, cheap, cheap movies. Some of them were incredibly bad. Some of them were incredibly good. But then along comes uh, the Asylum, which intentionally makes bad movies, not cheap movies, bad movies. They are yeah. also cheap, but by happenstance. Most so famously, we're cover Sharknado from 2013. Yeah. Of which I've seen every Sharknado now, as uh, some of the people on the Filmlings Discord now know. Uh, what I a wild ride that I've only seen the was. first so far. Uh, you can watch all of them if you want. I'm going to recommend that if you do it, you kind of just binge them all. Uh, don't, don't let that sit, because you're not going to come back to it if you pause. Um, and join the Discord, because we will have many people talking about these all month long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to have some fun movie nights this week, or uh, this month. Uh, and then we're going to do one of my personal favorites, which is essentially a pastiche of the genre, which is something that acknowledges the ri- ridiculousness of something and exaggerates the tropes about a genre to celebrate it because they enjoy it, which is the Velocipaster from 2018. Um, oh, boy. It's one of my <laughs> my favorite movies. I think it might be close to my top 10, if not in it, just because the attitude taken while making that movie was we don't have enough money to make a good movie, but we do have enough money to make a good, bad movie. And it is... Isn't that the plot of the producers? Basically, it's like, what if the producers became a genre? Um, springtime for Hitler and all that crap. So, <laughs> it is it is one of the most ridiculous... How did you find Velocipaster gifts, Chad? What? <laughs> Um, sorry, you guys should really join the Discord. If you're listening to this and not on the Discord, you should join the Discord. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Um, but anyway, we also have some ideas for the extended list. So if you're going to watch beyond um, just those movies, obviously there's not a limited canon here, uh, but uh, the extended list will feature movies like Atlantic Rim, Rubber, basically anything that's been on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like if you just yeah. want to crank up Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix... The OG or the or the return. Yeah, yeah, go for it. They are they have great content that definitely fit this. And they are also some of the first people to really start not just enjoying it, because people enjoyed it from the time they were made, but celebrating the idea of these bad movies. Um, because if you talk if you talk to if you listen to Joel Hodgson, I, I almost said talk to him like I know him. I don't. Um, obviously. Uh if you if you listen to him, it's not about putting down these movies. It's kind of about celebrating their ridiculousness. Um, yeah, and there's the thing I uh, love about the, that oh, is one that of the ones that should be on the commentary list is uh, Mono's Hands of Fate. Mono's Hands of Fate. That is the that most classic the of the mystery science theaters. That that one actually has a really tragic story to it too. Like one of the people in it, like the I think the guy who plays like the the henchman thought it was going to be big and it wasn't and he got really depressed and alcoholic and i think he oh, killed no. himself yeah it's oh, some of these have dark histories to them but so i am uh, going to throw out since you mentioned roger corman uh the terror um which has uh boris karloff and jack nicholson in it um 
classically Jack Nicholson was a lot so many Corbin movies yeah Um, more than he really should have been yeah the terror was famously made um with like two days of extra filming time that Roger Corman had after rushing a different production and so he had two extra days with Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson and a castle set and so he just threw a story together and filmed something and and uh it That's how doesn't like make 90% any of sense Corman's at all. movies were made. Yeah. But the fun thing that I just learned, there's a YouTuber named Austin McConnell, and he apparently was scrolling through the TV channels late at night one time and found the terror, but a Spanish dubbed version of it called El Terror. And he was so fascinated by how ridiculous it looked when he didn't understand anything that was going on from the language that he contacted the the company that did the dub and bought the streaming rights, and he's going to be streaming it on his YouTube channel soon, so that might end up being part of our extended watching on the Discord. Well, that could be interesting. Uh, it's, yeah, It's a no, fascinating it story. Of, I think this is going to be a very fun month to be on the movie nights, so if you're not on them and you're a regular listener, we highly recommend you join the Discord, come hang out with us and our filmings. A movie club and watch some of these crazy movies with us um we think you'll enjoy them uh but yeah anything uh to talk about with the patreon this time jonathan yes uh so speaking of the the discord the discord is going to be public now uh we are opening up the discussion to everybody but you can still support us on patreon and things that are available to patreon subscribers are things like uh, the live streaming of our recording. So if you want to listen to us as we're recording, uh, you can do that for the bottom tier. We also have a bonus podcast, uh, which we will be continuing this year. And we're going to start off by talking about The Phantom Carriage, which is a silent film from 100 years ago, 1921. Uh, it's a, speaking of gothic horror films, it's a gothic horror film that uh, looks really interesting. Um and our, I think that the first film that we're going to be doing on the movie nights, uh, which our next one will actually be tomorrow. So if you jump in the Discord, you'll be able to watch along with us tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, and that will be Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is available pretty much everywhere because it's public domain. So, so yeah, I think we'll be watching Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is definitely one to watch with people. So if you are planning to watch along, that will be a good that, time to that is, jump in. That is an important thing to note. We don't recommend you watch too many of these solo. They're way more fun watching in groups. Um, if you want to start your local filmlings chapter, feel free. <laughs> well, if we get enough people to start their own filming chapters, I will be I will, very satisfied. I will send you buttons. Uh, all right. Stay tuned for filmlings buttons. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next month. All right, see ya. Hey, Jonathan, what kind of story is this? uh, It's like like when you, it's really not that hard of a word. It's just like when you think too hard about how to like hold a fork and then suddenly you can't hold a fork (laughs) anymore.
Yeah, and I... You're going to have trouble picking up a fork next time you see it, bud. I hate to break it to you. Surroundings hey, and... Hey, Jonathan. Yeah. Say epistolatory solipsism five times fast. Epistolatory solipsism. You get one. Okay. <laughs> break um, down that theater kid uh, <laughs> enunciation. Uh, I'll, I'll use that to prep for the next episode. <laughs> um, 